engages our culture because we've been talking about engaging the culture ourselves and how um, we're supposed to live in a culture that's just completely devoid of God. I mean, if you watch the news and listen to stories that are going around and all the, the crazy stuff that's happening, it just gets nuttier and nuttier each week and uh, people are... Uh, the, the Christian faith itself stays on trial almost every week in the news by some group of people that doesn't like something some Christian did or said, and we get banned from things while everybody else is, we're supposed to be tolerant of everybody else, and I know y'all are watching some of that, it's, it's, uh, it's frustrating, but I'll remind you that God himself is in control. Um, God himself is in control of our nation, our country, our church for sure, Christ is the head of this church. And so as he calls us into a culture to engage that culture, I'm just going to challenge you that part of the responsibility you have, despite all the ramifications that might be out there, we have to present Christ and him crucified to a lost culture. Um, There's some creative ways to do that. We've studied some of those. We've looked at some of those in Acts chapter 17. We've talked about the challenge that the Apostle Paul had when he saw the idolatry that was rampant. Um, I say our country is filled with idolatry. We, we idolize ourselves and narcissism and there's materialism um, just rampant in our country. And so s- some ways you can connect that idolatry challenge that Paul gives um, to the people of our culture to say the thing you're searching for the most, thing you're trying to find satisfaction in will never work with, with money or or selfish goals, but if you'll turn to Christ. And the, the Lord Jesus Christ had a great way of interacting with people. Um, I will just tell you on a side note, if you ever just read through the Gospel of Mark, um, straight through the Gospel of Mark, and just look at people stories. Uh, the Gospel of Mark is one people story after another. Um, and it's Jesus helping people and touching people and serving people and loving people and healing people. Um, and it's... Uh, Supposedly, the Apostle Peter um, is the one who, who spoke the Gospel of Mark to his writer, Mark, who wrote it down. And uh, Peter, if you follow the Apostle Peter in the Scriptures, he was ADHD. He's Brandon Ezel, basically. And uh, he couldn't hold a thought for any more than about two seconds. And he shifted gears real fast. And, and so the most common word in the book of Mark um, is immediately and immediately. It's because he goes from one thing to the next. Oh, yeah, and then... And then this is what happened. And while he's telling that, he goes, oh, yeah, and then this is what happened next. And, and by the way, it's not, Mark's not chronological at all. It's just how Peter's brain was spitting out those details and those facts. And it's a be- but it's a beautiful picture of Christ and people. Um, and we've looked at several of those. This morning, I want you to turn to the Gospel of Luke, who's uh, much more methodical. And I want to talk to you about Jesus and religious people. Um, there's one thing in the Bible that could... You, you know, there, there's a bunch of people that say the Bible's full of contradictions. We got this hilarious email uh, this week to our website. Um, my son forwarded it to me, and uh, uh, somebody just took a huge shot at us on our website to to say the Bible's not inspired, and we're idiots for thinking that. And how can you how can you believe in any of this stuff if you research these real things? And then he sends me a YouTube link. I'm like, yeah, there's some research going on <laughs> YouTube. Good job. <laughs> I didn't go to Bible college and study the ancient manuscripts and all that for nothing, you know. So, but it's pretty funny. But, but he, this, this, whole, this, whole, this guy's whole argument is just f- really foolishness. And uh, it's sad that, you know, I'm, I imagine he's just going on websites of churches and, you know, trying to tear down their pastors or whoever reads their, their emails. Um, but when you get to the Gospel of Luke, 
Um, you find Jesus dealing with religious people, and he's not happy with religious people. People that have a religion of, of God, even of, of Jehovah God, um, they do not get along with Jesus, and he doesn't get along with them. He's very strong about that. And there's, there's one good example in Luke chapter 7, which is a beautiful passage. The whole chapter of Luke 7 is magnificent. Um, Jesus heals a centurion's son, and when that happens, he says, of a Roman centurion now, a Roman centurion, get the culture in your head. There were Jews, devout Jews that love God and worship at the temple and bring their sacrifices and their stuff into the temple all the time. And they're walking around the, the Greek and Roman culture that's so vile. It's so vile, it's amazingly bad. And here's this Roman centurion. And when he gets Jesus to help him and says, I don't even need him to come here. Just tell him to speak the words from where he is. I don't want him in my house. That would freak me. He's, he's much too good of a man for that. But he's a man of authority. I believe he has authority like me. So if he just speaks the word, it'll happen. Jesus heals that man's son long distance. And his son is genuinely healed. And Jesus says, I have not seen that kind of faith in all of Israel. All these Jews walking around with their, their books, they're memorizing the uh, scriptures of Isaiah that they're learning big chunks of and all their robes and all their stuff and all their going to the temple and worshiping and serving God like they thought they were supposed to. And Jesus goes, that Roman soldier that wouldn't even let me near his house? I haven't seen anything like that in forever, man. That is awesome. That's real faith. Real faith. And you go, wow. He, he praised a Roman centurion. A Roman centurion. So you know the Pharisees are going, oh, he's lost his mind. What do you mean he hasn't seen any faith in Israel like that? Doesn't he know what we sacrifice? Doesn't he know what our temple worship looks like? Doesn't he know what we do? Doesn't he see the hours of labor we spend trying to make sure that we got everything just like it's supposed to be according to the Old Testament? And we bring it all to the temple and lay it down in rows like it's supposed to be and we wash ourselves seven times like we're supposed to. Doesn't he know any of that? Roman centurion. But Jesus says in Luke 7, nothing like that. And then as you keep going, he just walks up on a, a, a literally a funeral. He interrupts a funeral um, of a young boy that's died. And that's, it's the, just think about Jesus now. Um, it's, uh, it's her only son. It's her only son. Jesus Christ is the only son of God. One. There's just one. And it's her only son. And he's died. He's laying on a, we would call it a stretcher. They call it a bear, a bear. But it's a stretcher. They didn't have big coffins back then. And he's draped. Probably in little, little flowers along the edges of it. And the family's carrying the boy to the, to the tomb they're going to bury him in. And Jesus' group of people, hundreds of them with him, walking through the countryside, running to, the, to this funeral. And Jesus just walks right up into the middle of it and does all kinds of no-no's. I mean, he broke every rule you could imagine at a funeral. Um, he he uh, interrupted the funeral, which is not supposed to happen. That's just rude. Uh, but then he, spe- then he actually touches the dead body, which as a Jew, nobody's supposed to do that. But he raises this boy from the dead because his heart was so compassionate for this mother lost her only son. And, uh, and so Jesus very compassionately uh, resurrects this, this uh, young man. And, uh, and then, he, then he finds out in uh, chapter 7, we also find out that um, he finds out that John's in prison and about to be beheaded. 
Very fascinating passage there. If you study that thing in detail, it's, it's almost disturbing how that goes because that's his cousin. John the Baptist is his cousin. He's in prison for, uh, for a, a very vulgar king. And he's in prison because the king uh, saw a woman uh, dance a vulgar dance and said, anything you want. And the woman's mother said, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so John the Baptist, greatest prophet of all times, Jesus says there's nobody like him, nobody like him. He's in prison because of the vulgar dance of a vulgar girl in front of a vulgar king in a corrupt culture. And it's Jesus' cousin, first cousin, by the way, not second, third, fourth, first cousin. And John sends word, and he's, he's a little anxious in prison about the whole deal. He sees it going the wrong way, and he sends word. And he says, would you just ha- check, has his disciples check with Jesus, say, you know, are you the one? Are you the one? And Jesus says, you know, tell him the blind see and the lame walk. And people have life around me. And then tell him these words. And he's in prison, about to have his head cut off. Tell him these words. John, blessed are you. That means favored by God if you don't stumble over these things. In other words, buddy, it's fixing to get really tough. They're going to walk you up a hill, they're going to put your head on a thing, and they're going to chop your head off, put it on a platter, and send it to the king, to the queen. Don't be offended. Don't be offended, John, when life gets really, really hard and your life actually ends. Don't be stumbling over me being sovereign and doing what has to be done. By the way, where is Jesus going? To the cross. So he's learning. He's, He's teaching... The truth he has in himself. I'm not offended that, Christ, that God needs me to die on the cross. John, don't you be offended that your life's fixing to get really complicated and really hard. So in chapter 7, is just beautiful. And then right at the tail end of it, you end up with the Pharisees uh, in the midst of this deal and the parable of the two debtors. So look in chapter uh, 7, verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting Jesus to dine with him And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So Jesus isn't opposed to hanging out with these religious people. Um, He doesn't hold himself back from fellowshipping with them. They're having dinner together. Behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with her hair and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now when the Pharisees who had invited this saw him, he said to himself, Pharisee thinking these words, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is and who is touching him that she is a sinner. Guess what Jesus knows? Who and what sort of woman this is. And that she is a sinner. A humble, repentant, devoted, broken-hearted sinner at his feet. That's what he knows. And here's this Pharisee going, Oh, if you only knew the kind of person... You, you, you clearly don't know much at all. You know, Jesus of Nazareth, you don't know much at all. So Jesus says, let me uh, just tell you a little story here. Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. Certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other owed 50. Um, 
when, and when uh, they were unable to repay, he graciously uh, forgave the fines of both of them. Which of them then will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one who forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. And then turning toward the woman, he said uh, to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. Didn't even do the, the ceremonial foot washing that we're just supposed to do coming into a house. Never did that. No water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, which, by the way, is a family thing they would do. The, the, the Jewish culture, when you, when you love somebody, even a, a non-family member, you embrace them and you kiss them on the cheek. They do that in, in Romania, by the way. If you ever go over there and do something they like, you get kisses like all the time from people that you aren't used to being kissed by. It's pretty crazy. But that's what they're doing. And Jesus goes, you didn't even do that when you welcomed me in the house. I didn't get a kiss from you. This woman has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins which are many... He's like, I know she's a sinner, duh. Her sins which are many have been forgiven. For she has loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man that he even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's a beautiful story. And we love this story. One of, your favorite, one of my favorite stories in the, in the scriptures. Because you have this contrast of two people. You have this woman who is... You have, these, you have the concept here that religious people care more about their image than anybody else. They care more about their image uh, than, in, than the others in the room. And so in Luke 7, you have this sinner, this woman who's devoted to Christ... And she's in a humble relationship. So, uh, so you have this... I'm just going to call out the notes are real simple today. Number one is religious pe- uh, people put their image before their soul. They care more about their image than others. And then you have this woman who's devoted to Christ in a very humble relationship. Isn't it amazing? She actually will not face him. She comes up behind him and he's reclining at the table. So she could have turned or gone to his side. She comes up behind him and stays behind him in a humble position, with her face right on his dirty, dirty feet, and weeps so that her tears anoint his feet. And she wipes all the water of her tears and all this alabaster oil into his feet and and kisses his feet constantly. I don't know if you've ever been so endeared to somebody like that. I've had people in in foot-washing ceremonies kiss my feet. Um, And it's amazingly humble uh, when those you fellowship with and love and, and you've been in a uh, relationship and discipleship or on a mission field with, we've done it on a mission field several times, and we just decide to do a foot washing to show our love and devotion to each other and to Christ. And when somebody washes your feet and they hold your foot real close to them and then actually kiss your foot, it's like, wow, it's very humbling. Here's this lady, Jesus says, she won't even stop kissing. She won't stop kissing my feet. She's so Uh, devoted and so much in love with me. But here's the religious person. You know what he did? He missed the beauty of the moment. He missed the beauty of the moment and he judges the woman and Jesus. He judges her to be a sinner. She shouldn't even be here. I don't know who let her in the door kind of deal. He judges the sinner 
And he judges Jesus. He condemns Jesus in his judgment. By the way, they were negative judgments. They weren't, hey, here's a good judgment. It's a negative judgment. The whole story in Luke chapter 15, by the way, there's a whole passage in Luke 15 that says Christ loves... Christ is always, it always points to Christ loving the lost and seeking the lost. The whole story of Luke 15 is of Jesus seeking the lost. He tells the story of a woman who lost a coin, a shepherd who lost a sheep, and a son who lost a father who lost a son. And the whole chapter is Jesus telling three stories in a row of how much He, God the Father, seeks lost people out and that there's a relationship desired between God and lost people, between Jesus and lost people. He is always seeking lost people. You know what religious people do? They just don't care about that. If you get too much religion in you, and you lose the relational side of what Jesus did for you, you're not worried about seeking the lost. You're worried about looking right at church. You know, you're worried about having the right clothes or, you know, what kind of Bible do we carry to church? Or, um, you know, what, what, how does this church do this? And, you know, do we stand like this or do we, can we raise our hand in this church? There's all these rituals that come on in our lives and we say, hey, I want to I fit in, you know, to church. And so I, I, need the, I need to know the ritual. I need to know the deal. And, and if you're not careful, you get so religiously minded that you start worrying about all that. And will my, will my church or my pastor or my... My peer group at church be pleased with me if I do this? Rather than saying, what is Jesus all about? He's about relating to sinful people. I had a guy, I was at camp this weekend. We had a little work day up there. I came back through after a little trip to Birmingham and I fellowship with those guys for a little bit. There's always several pastors there and we sat down and talked. And, and one of the pastors there shared with me, he said, he said he had a lady come in his office and say, uh... You know, I've really got some struggles with your church, little country church in Georgia. Got some struggles with your church. He's like, okay, I'm, I'm ready. You know, we, sure, we, got, we got troubles, ain't no question. <laughs> Just wonder if you know what the real ones are. And uh, she said, you know, one of your deacons, I saw him drink a beer the other day. And, and the pastor just looked at him and went, so? <laughs> just like that. <laughs> like, so? And, and she's like, he drank a beer. Now, I want you to know, this pastor, he went to college with us in Bible college. He's quite a bit older than me, but he got saved late in life. He was an alcoholic, okay? Raging alcoholic, should have died many times in, in his alcoholism. And God rescued him from all that. So if anybody has a thou shalt not drink beer bone in his body, it's Pastor Teddy. But he just looked at that lady and went, show me in Scripture where that's a problem, you know? Are you going to tell me he got drunk? Are you going to tell me he mistreated somebody in his alcohol stupor? You know, was he a drunkard? No. Did he drink a beer? Yes. Are you going to start picking things apart at our church over these little bitty things? How about this? And, and, you know, then you ask the question, well, do you know what that deacon does with his spiritual life? Do you know how he engages the community with the gospel? Do you know what his heart and his company is? Do you know any of that? Or are you just picking this one little thing that's your deal and driving it home? That's religious people trying to figure out how to make us all look the same and act the same and be the same, okay? Now, I'm going to tell you, my father was struggled with alcoholism, and I am an... Uh, teetotaler. I've had one drink of alcohol one time in Romania at a communion service and almost died. Okay, I did not know what that was. Put way too much of it down my throat and I thought I was going to just die from the fire down my throat. So, but I, and, I, and I'm going to say to you, I don't recommend beer. I don't see any good thing that comes from beer drinking. 
Um, but I'm going to tell you that you're not going to find in Scripture some, some mandate that that can't happen. And that you're somehow a, a greater sinner because of that. Or you shouldn't be a part of a church because of that. You shouldn't fellowship with people because of that. And here are religious people. They care more about the image than the soul of the person and what's happening there. It's a dangerous, dangerous deal. The second one you see is that religious people work hard to put on a show. But they have no substance. They care more about rituals. Second one. They care more about rituals than relationships. That's where Jesus really goes off on them. <laughs> More about rituals than relationships. And you can turn to one of the toughest passages in the whole of the Bible, Matthew 23. I'll make this statement. I think it's in your notes. If all we have is religion, then we lack a relationship to Christ. If all you have is a religion of Christianity in your life, say, well, I'm a Christian. That's my religion. Good for you. Probably going straight to hell if you don't understand what that means. Because Christianity... Is not a religion but a relationship. If all you have is a religion, you lack a relationship with Christ. And everything in Scripture points to relationship with Christ. Everything in the Scriptures point to relationship. When Adam and Eve sinned, they broke the relationship and fellowship they had with God right there in the garden. They broke it. And the, the rule was you do that, you die. And they did. They physically died because of it. It's part of their judgment. But did God break the relationship right there? He went, oh, let me figure out how to fix this. Let me, let me explain to you how I have to fix this now. I'm going to have to send the seed of this woman who's ultimately going to be Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And he's going to die on a cross to pay for all your sins and the millions of sins that are going to follow you in your generations. He's going to pay for all of them on the cross in a bloody death painful bloody death and separate himself from me for a time in order to do that because I love my created Adam and Eve and their sons and daughters. I love them so much that I am willing to make this work relationally. And he does. He makes it work relationally from Genesis 3 all the way through. Think of how many times Israel messed up the plan and did exactly what they were told not to. And asked for things God said, you really don't want that. That's not going to help you. Not going to help you. But okay. And I'm gonna, once you mess up, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to help you. Second and third and fourth and fifth redemptive graces all over Israel. God constantly rescuing Israel from their own Foolish, sinful behavior. You know why? He's relational. And he wants us to be with him. And he wants to repair and restore our hearts that are broken. And he constantly is showing you how to do that. I'm not going to ask you to count them, but everyone in this room that I know, your personal testimony, you can count how many times you've walked away or been very unfaithful to God. And he's walked you right back to him. Right back to him. He's, he's just loved you right back into a deal that says... I'm trying so hard to reach out to you because God is a seeker of sinners and the lost. That's what he does. There's a, there's a passage in uh, Malachi 1. Uh, it's very alarming. I'll just tell you the concept. You can read it sometime. But it's where God says to the, to the religious people of, of Israel, they're fakers, they're pretenders. They're giving God half-hearted effort at everything they're doing. By the time you get to Malachi 1, they're bringing lame and crippled offerings. Uh, they're not bringing the best of their, their stuff from the house to the, to the temple for worship. They're bringing their worst. And they're just making a mockery out of it all. They're half-hearted. They're half-hearted at their faith. 
I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you know you've struggled with that or you know people who struggle with that, but they're half-hearted. And you know what they do? When, when you get to Malachi 1, here's what God says, paraphrased by Stan. I wish y'all just shut the doors to the temple. Can we just close the... Can we just close it up for a while? I really don't want you to come in here anymore. That was the way Israel interacted with God. Their, their interaction with God was to come to the temple and walk in the doors with their sacrifices, give it to the priest, and go through all this ceremonial stuff. The priests go through all this, and then they would say, hey, we've communed with God today. You know what Malachi 1, God says to them through the prophet Malachi? You talk about some words. We should just close the doors. Could you just close the doors for a while? God's saying, I'm not enjoying this at all. Because there's nothing in your heart that's helping this work. Your heart's not in it. And I want a relationship with you. And you're just faking. You're pretending. We don't ever want to be on the religious side of that. Matthew 23. It's one of the most uh, strongest passages in the New Testament. um, Where Jesus just pounds away at the religious people. And I want to tell you, he is not kind in here. You will not find a spirit of kindness, although it's, you know, the nature of God is kindness. He is worked up. Let me just give you the context real quick of this deal. Um, in, in Luke chapter 23, we are Wednesday. We are three days away from his arrest. We are right at the end of his earthly ministry. And he's put up and put up and put up with these religious people like, in, like the Pharisee that he had dinner with that didn't understand what was really happening and thought Jesus didn't understand. He's put up and put up and put up with them. And they've wrestled and wrestled and wrestled. He's come into town at the beginning of this particular week we're going to read him teaching on. He's come into town on a donkey and everybody's went, Whoa, blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, Hosanna, Hosanna. And, and the Pharisees freaked out at all that. And they've stopped all their just catching up with him in his teaching and trying to catch him in a deal. And they've gone into secret meetings now to say, We've got to kill him. 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 But we don't want it on our hands. We've got to figure out how to get it on Rome's hands. And they've had these secret meetings. And by the way, they've already probably started some dialogue with Judas to get Judas to betray the location because at nighttime, Jesus kind of disappears into the woodwork and they can't find him. And so, so here they are in chapter 23, uh, just wrestling. They are furious at Jesus and he is furious at these religious leaders. He knows what's coming, by the way. When, when uh, Peter preaches in the book of Acts of Jesus' crucifixion, he says, the Jews, we crucified him. It really was the Pharisees. You've heard me teach this. The Pharisees actually had Jesus crucified by Rome. They did a political power play against Pilate and made him, twisted his arm and made him who five times Pilate, Pilate five times tried to release Jesus. You'd say, well, he's the most powerful guy there. Not politically. He was the most powerful guy by, if you chart the charts and go, yeah, he's at the top of the rung. But there are people under him, the Pharisees, who have played a political scene to to Caesar and now they can actually influence Pilate. And that's why it says in John, John 19, it actually says, uh, the Pharisees say, if you don't crucify him, you're no friend of Caesar. The Pharisees were saying to Pilate, we've already been to the back door, buddy. We've already met with Caesar. This is, your head rolls if you don't do this deal. And there were three other deals that, that, that were political that the Pharisees had won Caesar's ear on. And so Pilate's in trouble now. Five times he tries to release Jesus. Who crucified Jesus? The Jews. His own religious people. 
that love God, that read the Old Testament, that study the Scriptures, that wait for the promised Messiah. They're the ones. So small wonder when you get to chapter 23 of Matthew, Jesus is a little bit worked up with these guys. A little bit worked up. And there's seven woes. We're not going to go through them all. Uh, but you've, you've read some of this before. Verse 13, he starts with the woe, you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you shut off uh, the kingdom of heaven from men. There's an exclusiveness there. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land and make, uh, make people proselytes. You make them to, and by the way, he's saying, you make them, you force them to become just like you, which is not healthy. <laughs> we don't ever want to be that. You know, we're not making little cookie-cutter north-side people here. Everybody has their freedom to be who they are in Christ at this church. Anyway, when you get to verse 23... That's what I want to focus on for a minute. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. Ladies, y'all know what all that is? That's your spices from your kitchen. I meant to go get some bottles of it, and I didn't. But it's your spices. And, of course, they grew their own herbs. Some of you ladies go, what, your spices, what? <laughs> I know you can cook. Um, but they grew their own herbs back then. And so you have this little herb plant that grows up, and it's got 15 leaves on it. And you've got to tithe. The first fruit of all your stuff in the Old Testament, the first fruit of everything goes to God. By the way, if you want to do true tithing from the Old Testament, if you, I'm an Old Testament tither, I tithe 10%. You haven't read all the Old Testament, it's 23%. Because they had to tithe the first fruits of everything. And so when that little plant would come up with 15 leaves, they had to figure out what 10% of 15 leaves are, tear them into little strips, make a little pile, put it in a little cloth, say, all right, here's my mint tithe, here's my dill tithe, and here's my cumin tithe, and here's my salt tithe, and my sugar tithe. My pe-. It's all their, all their kitchen stuff. All their little stuff that they'd grown in the, in, in the garden. Here's my corn tithe and, you know, here's my potato tithe. They had all this stuff and they figured it out exactly. And Jesus goes, man, y'all are awesome at calculating how many mint leaves the temple gets. You know, you're great at that. Here's the problem. Justice, mercy, zero. The stuff that really matters, the weightier matters. It's a uh, Greek word Jesus used right there to really blast the Pharisees because they used to teach their young people there are things that are easy to talk about then there are the things of God that are the weightier matters. That's how the Pharisees used to teach their people. Say, so, you know, there's just regular everyday conversation people have about God. Then there's the weightier matters. Only we Pharisees know the weightier matters of God. And so Jesus uses their own word and he says, oh, you're real good at sorting out your kitchen you know, stuff. Your seasonings, oh, that's fantastic. Good job. You separated your men out. This is exactly a perfect mint tithe. But there's no justice, there's no mercy in your life. You're not working on the things that really, really matter. They had the wrong values and the wrong priorities. The details of the law were all about ritual. See, if you read the Old Testament, it's all about the ritual of it. You know, count the, count the leaves on the plant... Oh, wow, we've got to figure out how to divide this leaf into three parts. One, two, three. Well, that's exactly right now. It's good. Count the leaves on the plant and divide it all up. 
the, the law is all about ritual. Justice, mercy, and faith. What is that all about? Who do we have justice for? Each other. Who do we have mercy toward? Each other. Who do we express our faith to and then live it out among each other? Justice, mercy, and faith is all about people. And Jesus is going, you guys have got it all backwards. I really don't care about the, the mint tithe being exact. I mean, sure, you should do it. It's obedience. Go ahead. You know, chop, chop them up and get them there best you can. I'm not worried about that. How about love somebody well this week? How about care for somebody? And the thing that drove Jesus nuts with religious people is they are all about rituals and never about relationship. And Jesus, from the time he walked on earth, was all about relationship. There's one other passage, and I'll just close with this before we take our, our ritual communion, by the way. I'm going to talk to you about that. Before we take our time at the table this morning. In John chapter 10, I've told you this before, but Jesus tells a, a parable of the, the good shepherd. And in the parable of the good shepherd, a lot of people get confused about what it's all about, but it's actually another story where Jesus is punching the Pharisees. He says there's a, a sheep fold that has a lot of sheep in it. And uh, some people go, well, that's heaven and all the sheep that are in heaven... You know, and Jesus says, I'm the door. If you come in and out, you go, you go in through me. So you go, well, that must be heaven. It's not heaven. People get that messed up early in the passage, and you misinterpret John 10. The sheep fold is a whole bunch of sheep. He actually says there are wolves that climb in over the wall and get sheep. Now, I don't want wolves in heaven. Sorry. Just don't want wolves climbing in eating us as sheep in heaven. So that can't be heaven. you got to think through it differently. Jesus says in this fold of sheep, there are wolves in there that look like sheep, but they're wolves. Um, he's talking about Israel. In John 10, he says, there is a whole group of people known as Israel. And I am the passage for them. My sheep hear my voice, and they know me. And when I step away from the door and walk to go on a, uh, a shepherd walk through the meadows to get graze and to get water for my sheep, they follow me. That's what it says in John 10. My sheep hear my voice. They know me. You know what it is? It's relationship. Jesus is saying, I have a relationship with my sheep. The other sheep, they don't follow. They complain and they make all kinds of statements like, that man doesn't know who the sinners are. He doesn't know nothing. They, they are all kinds of wolves in there. That's the Pharisees and, and the uh, bad religious leaders of the day. But Jesus says, my sheep follow me. Not only do they follow me, then he says this. And I have a whole nother fold, a whole nother flock. You guys, talking to the Jews, you guys have no idea about. There's a whole other flock. You know who that is? Northside Bible Church. Every Gentile that's related to Jesus Christ. I have a whole nother fold of Gentiles that you don't know anything about. And one day, we're all going to be one. Both are going to come together. Why? Because we all follow one Christ. We're all going to be one fold together. And that's us. In John chapter 10, Jesus actually mentions a Gentile fold. And that's you. You can write your name in John 10 and say, here's me right here. You were there. When he mentioned that, he's got you in mind. He can see all the way into the future and see us as his children as part of that fold. And so in John 10, you see the religious people are considered the wolves who are destroying sheep. But then you see the sheep. That's us. And here's what I want to say to you today. Jesus wants a personal relationship with every one of us. He wants you to know His voice. 
to know His call, to know His direction, um, to know His heart. He wants you to know Him and follow Him. That's relationship. That's what Christianity is. It's not religion. It's not religion. And you get too religious, you get in trouble. So I'm challenging you today to evaluate yourself. Don't get lost in the do's and don'ts of of, uh, some sort of Christian religion. There's a whole lot of things the Bible does tell us we should do and ways we should live and things we should guard ourselves from, things that are very dangerous. But don't get caught in that without having a relationship because it's in the relationship with Christ that that instruction comes best. If you have a relationship with Him, you get the instruction crystal clear in your head. He'll tell you this is dangerous for you. He'll tell you this is something you don't want to get involved in. He'll tell you this is good for you. You need to get involved and plug into these people or this group or this thing. But you've got to have that relationship. And you've got to say to God, I want anybody that seeks Him with their whole heart, He says, you will surely find me. Surely find me. Because God seeks lost people. And He seeks out people that are searching for Him. Let's bow our heads together. And then we're going to take communion.